All right, we ready to party? Let's do it. Okay. It's not really a party, but it's a it's, it's a, a nice small party. Gathering. Yeah, I guess people are getting drunk. Well, and you know, <laughs> ha- like what what's a party? Oh, you know, so many, so many, so many damn books. Welcome to so many damn books. I'm Christopher. I'm Drew, and we have Preeti Tanasia in the uh, damn library with us today. Preeti, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Uh, she is the author of "We That Are Young" out from Knopf, um, in beautiful I love hardcover. At this book with this just like this rich, rich sort of slightly maroonish reddish cover it's just like is it just a good looking book we're excited to have you thanks i'm really excited to be here and the the cover is something i'm really proud of actually yeah yeah because people think of it differently you know some people find it like a kind of subtle communist statement and (laughs) um some people see a sort of capitalist um, gilding of our world and, and but the red color is a really traditional Actually, a really traditional nail varnish color for Indian mm. women. Um, wow. And so for me, it really reminds me of all sorts of nostalgic things. <laughs> cool. Did you as tell well them blood. you wanted that color? Or uh, Yeah, I picked the color. I oh, cool. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Should we talk about this um, drink? Yes. I'm calling it the Old Fashioned Adapted, uh, as we have an adaptation. We That Are Young is a King Lear mm. sort of uh, adaptation. And uh, so this is, um, has two ounces of whiskey, a teaspoon of cherry chai jam, a three to quarter ounce of a chai syrup, and then some uh, a bitters mix of my own making. Nice. Um, and yeah, stirred up and served over a big uh, ice cube with a lemon wedge. It's a good cold weather drink. Thank you. Yeah, and yeah. it's very it's a very classy drink. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> it looks really beautiful. I'm, oh. I'm allergic to pink drinks. Oh yeah. Glasses. <laughs> yeah, totally. I I'm actually kind of delighted when something ends up pink, and I wasn't really thinking that it would. <laughs> like when I work with You've raspberries a, yeah, or something. Yeah, quite a number of drinks where you're like, oh, I guess that's pink. It turned out pink. <laughs> 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 it happens sometimes. So yeah, that's the drink. Um, why don't we talk about the the um. Book, uh, ca- capitalism. Cap- speaking of capitalism, yeah. Do you want to start? Uh, sure. So I this is the this is such a long title and I love it. Um, it's for more drink making. I just I just bought this at a used bookstore in Bushwick. Um, Topos Books. It's called a. Uh, Homemade liquors and infused spirits, innovative flavor combinations, plus homemade versions of Kahlua, Cointreau, and other popular liqueurs. Wow. And it's by Andrew Schloss. And um, I don't know. There's a whole thing about like making a, a rosehip um, cordial wow. and stuff. There's like some crazy things in there. And it's going to up the game in this damn library. Cordials. That always makes me think of Redwall. Me too. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a weird word though, isn't it? Because it it sort of suggests politeness in a way, like yeah. to be cordial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but um, this is going to maybe con- fruit concentrate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um another thing that I got there um was this pocket you know those pocket mysteries? Like the mm-hmm. they're like Signet and Dell put them out sometimes. Um I got one that's an old seventies uh 
Kiss Kiss by Roald Dahl. Whoa. Um, which is pretty awesome. Like, I didn't know that I've never heard of this title from him. But the cover had a baby carriage, a parrot, a teacup, a glove, and a key. It's just like, and it is a mystery. So all right. just like all of these items have to be in this book. This, <laughs> this cover design is much more like, what was in this book? Mm-hmm. A parrot. <laughs> <laughs> which is a, anyway, so uh, that was my used bookstore buying. I always like to go to the vintage when they have like a 70s paperback yeah. section i love to look through there yeah so i was um in in this place in west 4th street last night um which is near the ifc the cinema mm-hmm. and there's a bookstore right across the street from there i think it's remainded books and mm-hmm. political books mm-hmm. you know so they have a lot of really interesting stuff that's all um you know much n- like more cheap because I found books quite expensive here in the States. Mm-hmm. I'm not yeah. sure like why the tax on books make, you know. <laughs> um, that's not good. But yeah, so I bought a copy of Adrian Rich's collected notes and essays, which I'd never mm. seen before collected. Um, and it was $5, so absolute bargain. Well, that's, nice. yeah. that's great. Yeah, Wait, brilliant. so you were saying um, off off mic that uh, Knopf is, help, is helping uh, fund your book book spree in america yeah i have this like vampiric habit of i can't literally go into a bookshop without actually buying something Uh or um or or, and it just has to be it it is impossible for me to leave and because i've been on a book tour and been in bookshops as part of that (laughs) so before i got here i um the the lovely leslie levine knopf told me that she could help me ship some books home and I think she meant five, but <laughs> <laughs> it's been quite a lot because of, because I've been here for quite some time now. And, and, you know, there's just so many new things that I wanted to read, so many things I want to buy. Yeah. And people have recommended books to me. Um, so and obviously I can't just fly them home in my suitcase. No, you'd have to take a library home with you. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and um, and so, yeah, she's been having to pack them up and send them. Thank you, Leslie. <laughs> <laughs> Have you bought anything? Uh, I have. I I was thinking recently, actually, we got a, a package of um, arcs of Valerie Lucelli's new book, Lost Children Archive, from woo-hoo. Knopf. And I was thinking, you know, one of the really nice things about doing this show is that we do often get books in advance and books by authors who I love. And, and I was like, you know, we do a lot to support those authors by doing the show and encouraging these things, but also... There have been a couple of threads recently on Twitter about, you know, pre-orders are the best way to support it's your true. favorite authors. And I was like, okay, I'm going to try to pre-order one book a month for 2019. Even oh. if I've got an arc of it or something, I already screwed up because I did two for February of next year. Um, but I pre-ordered actually the UK cover of Lost Children Archive because I really liked it. Mm-hmm. And then a copy of Charlie Jane Anders' new book, The City in the Middle of the Night. Oh, cool. Great title. Yeah. Really yeah. good title. There's a lot of good stuff coming out in February too. It turns out, as yeah. I was sort of, I was like, oh, maybe, maybe I want that too, and that. Uh, and my fiance was standing over my shoulder as I was on book depository, and she was like, two, yeah, two. <laughs> <laughs> so helpful. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's always the slight worry that we're just going to get um, killed in a mountain, uh, in an avalanche of books in in the damn library. Yeah. <laughs> And she seems to be helping. Shouting, damn. Cute. Cute. <laughs> <laughs> I really just had to do that. <laughs> That's how people will find us in the, the rubble of all the books. Us, well, us still <laughs> shouting, damn. Uh-huh. damn. 
אוקיי. Let's talk about your novel, We That Are Young. Um, will you talk about what it is for people who haven't read it? Or, or okay, so We That yet? Are Young is um, a retelling. People call it a retelling. I actually call it a translation of Shakespeare's King Lear yeah. um, to contemporary India. And it's told from the perspective of the five young people from Shakespeare's play. So there are three daughters and two sons. And they're all a kind of... The three daughters related to each other, their sisters and the two boys are brothers and they're a group of kids who've grown up together um, across the sort of trajectory of India's change from a socialist to um, an economic liberalized country and now to a kind of hungry, very hungry capitalism. And they're in a position of real elite power here because they are, um, the daughters are, are in a hotel owning family who have their fingers in every kind of political pie from <laughs> politics to media to construction to every th- every single thing that you can imagine along that supply chain. So what, what actually happens when you have a family like that and it's a family business is that it's a pyramid structure. Mm. And the companies that they then invest in, they kind of own shares in and everything kind of trickles down to the millions and billions of consumers who are buying their products and mm-hmm. the money just gets fed back up the chain to them. So it's a self-perpetuating cycle and it's really based on a historical trajectory from the Indian partition to today. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yes. <laughs> I love that idea of it as a translation. That's such a cool way to think about it. And that. I almost I hope that that can encourage people who are leery of translation and of translated literature to be like, yeah, this is another way to translate it. Yeah. When you take a text like Lear that people tend to know yeah. and and do something new with it, mm. that's a really cool way to think about it. I uh, I went into this. I'm, I'm going to tell you, I, I've never seen or read King Lear. So oh, I went into really? this. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, I went into this completely like I had. I didn't know what was going to happen in any way. Oh, great. Have you ever been to India? Um, no. Oh, right. Great. So you're kind of like completely fresh to yeah. this world and to its... Yeah, epic. exactly. Um, but I, I loved it for this, like the deep melod- melodrama of this life that like every... Because so much money, you can just live and, and all of your decisions are so enormous. <laughs> I don't know. Um, can you talk about just like depicting excess of wealth? And like how that felt in uh, in the midst of, of okay, so this. <laughs> what, so there is a tendency to try to find the author in the text, mm-hmm. and I'm going to just put this out there: like this is not the world that I'm from, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> But is it is it not the world that somehow we're all from, right? Mm. Because we are all implicated in this consumer culture that we live in. We can't help it; we have to be. And the second thing is that everywhere I look, I'm being advertised at. Every mm-hmm. time I turn mm. on the television, someone's telling me, oh, look at my fabulous lifestyle. And, you know, here is here are the f- rich and famous doing this. And here is, you know, the young and the restless. And like everything in culture seems to be pointing towards the value system, which which wants us to be wealthy. Mm-hmm. And for me, like when I look at that, I want to understand how it changes us, how it traps us, what, where, we are, where we are inside it. And I wanted to really deconstruct that. Mm. So, but as you begin to write about it, 
you begin to realize the limits of your own imagination <laughs> you know what like because i'm thinking wow that that's surely that isn't you know that's too rich mm-hmm. that's just insanely rich and then i read something in the newspaper about somebody's concord <laughs> reconstruction or you know how much a ticket to the moon costs and i'm mm-hmm. thinking wow i could never have imagined <laughs> so the limits of my own middle class upbringing which is you know firmly bourgeois is um a, a and I'm very proud of that. But, you know, that you do realize that actually this is a different species of mm-hmm. life. Right. And the right. way that it's being lived is just completely extraordinary. Ooh, it's just weird. It is weird. I, I don't have contempt for that world no. you know, at all. And I don't feel like the characters um, are drawn that way in the book because they are pe- what I'm trying to do is sort of look at a social structure and structural violence mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. a system. And every every human being that's inside that, you know, um, and Shakespeare it does something really interesting. If you have, if you have any knowledge of the play, or even if you don't, in King Lear, the family is obviously a royal family. Everyone in the play is a courtier or somehow connected to it by their servanthood, their service. And there's and there's a, and there are scenes in which all of these characters somehow become other to themselves, and they have to go and be poor people. They have to take on the mantle that their father has left them mm-hmm. or you know that the violence is put in their hands to perpetrate or something is like opposite to how they've been brought up in a way mm. but one of the things that was really striking to me about this play when I began to look at it really closely for the book was that there are no actual poor people in it mm-hmm. because there is a level beyond which maybe there's like one or two that have a couple of lines where they go wow I saw this and you know top of the cliffs yeah or something like that but Shakespeare never goes there. Yeah. He pretends that he is going there through these very wealthy characters because he's trying to make us see the world that perhaps his audience might know or, you know, these very wealthy people that he's performing and presenting these plays to in they see themselves in new ways. Mm-hmm. So that was really interesting for me, especially because right now we're really engaged in debates on who gets to write whose stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I've done a lot of work in different parts of the world with people who have who are much less privileged and they're all striving to make art or culture or whatever. And it seems to me they're perfectly capable of telling their own stories. And that's what I want to facilitate. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I write about the rich and famous, I'm OK about that <laughs> because I live in that world and I'm like under the level of that. So right. uh, yeah, I don't feel like that's appropriation. I know I know Lear very well. I've I am a huge Shakespeare nerd. I work at the Public Theater. Cool. Um, and I think Lear is probably I've seen more Midsummers, but then Lear is probably the one that I've seen the second most of. Just I think because there are also a ton of older actors right now who are very happy to be tackling their Lear mm-hmm. for better or worse. Um, but so I I was really enjoying as I was reading it, being like, oh this is the oh this is this yeah. But I was wondering, did you ever feel hamstrung by the play? There were definitely moments where um, some of the decisions I made early on, I ha- I sort of thought, oh, no, I'm so deep in this now and I have to carry <laughs> on with this. Because I, early on, I made the decision that I really wanted to see if I could do the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It, it was a very conscious choice to say, I want to see if I can find thematic and, and plot parallels for 
almost every aspect of this mm -hmm. and all of the different ways that I've read it and studied it and seen it and all of those ideas that are in the play which are just so rich so I was trying to find those things but when those big scenes are, are approaching like a storm scene mm -hmm. or a blinding scene and I'm thinking okay fine the really difficult thing here is that the language in this play is so amazing and mm -hmm. it's just so famous mm -hmm. so how do you as a writer doing translation work of form and um, of time and content in a way find a way of making that language your own without just sounding exactly as if you're just pulling the Shakespeare and putting it into a new world. It's not fan fiction. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I really appreciate actually that you and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think I saw a single direct quote in a way that I feel like authors very there's like this Hogarth Shakespeare series right yeah. now. And those are fun, but I see authors like very consciously they work in something and it's sort of like they're winking at you, like, ah, it's the you know <laughs> it's my version of the famous line whereas yours it did it really felt organic and it felt like it felt like a translation yeah thanks for saying that i appreciate <laughs> that um yeah there there probably are cu a couple but they're put in such an uncanny way um there's a couple of like of the expletives like howl 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 oh howl. yeah there's one of those um somewhere in the book and i think there are a couple of more there are a couple of no's because, um, you know, Shakespeare used repetition mm -hmm. to great effect in Leah. And um, and it was almost too tempting. And, you know, little words that are resonant that mean something like nothing. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I've used I've used used those in other people's mouths. So mm. I don't think it's ever really directly. Oh, this character says this in Shakespeare and this is what she's going to say. Right. In the in the book and we that are young. Um I remember very distinctly sitting at my desk when I was working on the blinding. And I think I was working on the third draft of this by that time and feeling like I knew it was coming and just having to sort of take a breath and pull <laughs> myself together in a way physically mm -hmm. because it's just so hard to, um, to, to get away from how Shakespeare makes that scene so disgustingly violent mm -hmm. and so absurd and yeah. the the kind of person perpetrating the violence the thing changes hands so many times mm -hmm. in the scene um then a novel form allows you to get into people's heads in a way that a play script requires the actors to show mm -hmm. yeah so for me, I'm, you know, trying to kind of stay in that moment of being in this he the head of the, f the character who's narrating this scene. Rather, she's one of the, she's the middle daughter, um, you know, and some people have found that scene com completely unbelievable for the world. <laughs> that just tells me that they need to get out more. <laughs> Sorry. You know, because another, and on the other hand, in India, I've had readers very sort of people I respect, other writers and translators who have said to me, oh, you know, there's nothing in this book that surprised me in terms of the way it's so violent and mm. so corrupt. And in fact, you could have gone 10 steps further. Mm. I know. Was it nice to have this like, oh, I can at least I know I can at least do this thing like you had the you had the um, skeleton in front of you. Yeah. I mean, whenever I found myself getting stuck with my own book, I did go back to the play mm -hmm. because I because I love it. And it's been part of me for such a long time. And it was always reassuring to go back there and find something in the language that completely surprised me. Mm hmm. 
and re- reminded me that I had the freedom to um, take this in directions that were mine. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's this fantastic little bit where one of the characters calls the other one a base football player. Mm-hmm. And you're like, wow, that is so modern to me. That is so contemporary. Mm-hmm. But perhaps no one's ever really kind of thought about what that actually means before. Right. And so you can just take these tiny lines and then they make them into something that really does matter mm-hmm. in your own story. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. It was it was neat, too, to see the ways in which the novel form really did allow a deeper exploration of of moments that are brushed over in the play with, like, a line. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, these characters were off doing this. That's what happened off stage. Here they are now. But and here, like, we get to see... We get to see Jeet's whole journey basically there's also the kind of neat thing about um kind of like how uh painters when they're starting out they paint the masters like to like it makes sense and like st- they start like working and changing it the way that they're going to like i feel like this there's something to this as well like, but shakespeare you know is a great borrower yeah and there's so much in Lear, which um was sort of reframe from other plays and other books and history and so on and so on that Shakespeare was working with and the beauty of that is that he was stitching together something we're going to talk about that theme later I guess with Frankenstein and Baghdad but um, something that he had to make resonant completely resonant for his own contemporary moment Mm -hmm. and if you read um, a book called The Year of Leah which is James Shapiro's great book on um, what was happening in that world um, politically while Shakespeare was putting Leah together I found that brilliant because I realized that actually he is making this argument of something that felt really familiar to me but somehow the, the things that were happening in my world and in the world of contemporary India and politics um, and gender and so on was shaping my decisions about how I wanted these characters to present themselves on the page and that was a complete that is a completely politically valid and aesthetically valid mm. way to form your work right. and Shakespeare did it too mm-hmm. um, and then you know he sets Shakespeare set the play outside his own time so it's set outside a Judeo-Christian world. It's set in a kind of pagan universe, and mm-hmm. there's references to Merlin and mm-hmm. you know all sorts of prophetic gods and you know yeah. and and so on. And and that and that really said to me, okay, fine, you don't have to write a realist novel in the conventional form. You can take this book and cut up the structure. You can mm-hmm. make different voices. You can include a lot of myths and epics from Indian culture as well and and make that really an important part of the what lies beneath the surface of this text in this world Mm -hmm. this book came out in the UK earlier than it did here in the states right it came out two years ago no august last year so oh, okay yeah august 17th yeah. last year what it, i mean what has it been like to sort of have the book and be on the sort of publicity side of things for that much longer mm. gosh i mean you know it's just a it's like something you can't imagine happening when you're just sitting there writing and it doesn't happen to every book mm. so you never feel like um th- my particular story is a little bit of one of those Cinderella stories that if you if you if you're still in the middle of being turned down you just gnash your teeth and think why didn't you just take that story and shove it you know <laughs> or you hope that maybe that will be your story too and of course like you probably know this backstory but this novel um when i finished writing it it was 2013 i had spent 3 years 
um, doing the research and traveling and working on the drafts. And then it went on submission through a super agent who um, was very excited about it. But London Publishing was just like, absolutely not. Wow. So I had to put it in a drawer and get on with my life and and work and pay my bills and all of that stuff. And um, just kept working on it on my own time around that until I won a tiny voluntary press competition to publish a novella. And um, the people who published that, like... They, they do their publishing, again, around their jobs. Mm-hmm. They're based in Norwich. They're called Gatehouse Press. And they took this novella um, and a chapter of We That Are Young, mm. the Jeet chapter, in fact, which I considered to be the best oh, chapter cool. by that point, mm. round to the house of my UK publisher, Galley Beggar Press. Wow. Right. And stood in the doorway in Norwich. So not lo- not even London, like nowhere near. Uh-huh. Um, and said, you know, you have to read this. It's really great. And they read it and they bought the book like two weeks later wow. cool yeah you know it, it takes a small press sometimes to take a risk on a book mm-hmm. and just fall in love with new experimental language and ways of telling stories and especially the kind of chutzpah to um to take on shakespeare mm-hmm. as, yeah. as i was told i had <laughs> by other people so yeah so that book came out august um, 2017 and then it just began to gather momentum in the press and word of mouth um, and in the bo- among bookshops. And and that w- caught the attention of my editor at Knopf, the legendary Sunny Mehta, who mm. bought the book for Knopf. And here I am. Wow. Cool. That's a crazy story. It is the craziest story. And now you're here. Yeah. In, in, uh, in the damn library. <laughs> in, in the Park, damned library. In Park Slope, Brooklyn. Faced by this wall of books, which <laughs> you probably described before to your listeners, but it is intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> you, I, We've we, gotten that, that a couple of times. Yeah, that's <laughs> what we say. Why don't we talk about the book that you brought? Um, because there's a lot of things to talk about in conversation with all of these things, too. Right. Um, Frankenstein in Baghdad by um, Ahmed Sadawi. Would you tell us uh, why you recommended this to us? Yeah, and, and about the book as well. Okay, so I read a lot of fiction in translation, and I love a good translation because I feel like when it's done really well, it, it is like being able to understand that language without having learned it it's Mm -hmm. like suddenly you're in this country with this writer who is talking to their own readers in a way and so he's and it's really translated well into English it's almost like suddenly you can understand everything that's going on Mm -hmm. because I don't really want to explain stuff I don't I don't I'm not the kind of reader who wants foreign foreign words and I'm putting air quotes around that word to be explained to me and when you read in translation they're not right right it's not like someone writing in English and putting in some different words from another language and mm-hmm. then explaining in brackets and it just slows down the text and shows up an artifice. And yes, that's fine. If the form of the book it wants to show up that artifice, like, you know, some writers do that brilliantly. But, mm-hmm. you know, w- but some books in translation don't, they just don't need to do that. They mm-hmm. don't explain. And, you know, this book p- has particular resonance for me because... Before I became a writer um, working on We That Are Young, which is my first book, I used to work on minority rights issues in different parts of the world, and I covered minority rights in Iraq. So I worked a lot with refugee people who had left Iraq from smaller communities like the Syrian 
Assyrian Christians mm-hmm. and the Mandaeans and the Yazidi people and the Sibian people and all of these different communities that had to flee Iraq following the US invasion, which is really what this book is about. Yeah. And it shows that kind of lives of all of these different religious and ethnic and linguistic minorities lived in Baghdad in the middle of the occupation um, in 2005. And yet he does it with this very, very lighthearted, macabre, stitched together narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very gothic. Very. Um, and I just found it both hilarious and sad and it reminded me so much of all the people I met on that journey of when I was reporting on how they had coped with and what they had had to face and how why they had fled in the first place right and so this this book you know tackles all this as you were saying through the Frankenstein myth right um and so there's there's this you're, you're you've got this junk dealer who's telling stories um in the coffee shops and amidst all of this car bombs are going off mm-hmm. and suicide bombers and they compare them to each other like oh it wasn't as bad as the one two weeks ago and yeah. it's just sort of like this unending horror in the background of this guy who took a body and was sewing it together so it could be buried um, properly. properly and uh and it now becomes a it becomes frankenstein and goes off and and there's many different ways that it uh affects the landscape of of what's going on around them and at the same time you're also following a brigadier general who's after him and the astrologers and wizards that was my favorite yeah little thing where occasionally it'd just be like and i could see it in my mind this sort of it would like the tone of the book shifted and it's very serious but these guys being like so we looked at the star charts and we believe that this is what's going to happen next. Yeah. <laughs> and like they have this, they're like very puffed up about themselves. Mm-hmm. And they it just, use like red dust all the time. Red yeah. dirt. <laughs> and that, it was that kind of, I mean, when we think about Iraq, I think, I think especially in this country, like liberal minded young people who grew up in America and one of our earliest politically conscious moments is the invasion that there's just like, we sort of want the like the deep, uh, soul-rending look at like, oh, this is the pain we have inflicted, and the fact that that's in this book, but that it's also funny, yeah, was just marvelous. Yeah. How often do you get to see it from the side of the person who is on the receiving end of that? That's mm-hmm. the thing. Like you know, you can read Kevin Powers' Yellow Birds, yeah. and it's a wonderful book, and it, I found it completely devastating, but. It's told from the point of view of somebody who went in right, and critiquing his own system, which is great and needs to be done. But this book is so clever and funny about how humans cope with occupation mm-hmm. and how nothing is pure. That is one of the things I love about it the most because everybody is sort of holding a secret about once they had a grandmother mm-hmm. who converted to Islam to who used to be an Assyrian Christian or something like this. And Mm -hmm. there's no real purity. And yet they're kind of caught in the grip of the sectarian violence that's just pulling people apart. Right. As if, as if the body of the country is a kind of Frankenstein Mm. that's, you know, being broken and then being restitched. And somehow there are lots of good, rich metaphors there. I was I was coming into it and reading it in the month of October, so I was thinking about like it's a spooky book. Last year I actually reread Mary Shelley's Frankenstein for the first time in a long time, 
And so I had that relatively fresh in my mind, which was great because I, I was able to remember that Frankenstein the novel is, it doesn't have all of the modern trappings of the Frankenstein story of the lightning and the thing. And so in this, when, when the creature, when the what's its name, which I also really loved, uh, when it just sort of like, it just gets up, a -hmm. spirit just like drops into it and it just gets up and starts walking around. There isn't this sort of big, like earth shattering moment where, Oh, I've brought this thing to life. It like, everybody's like, Oh shit. What happened? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's also interesting too, in that there really are like a million voices that this is told in, you know, Mm -hmm. like one of the things like you can get, you can get into just like a little, little slippers of things. And like the, I, I really liked, um, Mahmoud and Saidi's relationship. These, these two guys who are, one runs a magazine and one writes for them. Mm-hmm. And he's coming across the story and trying to figure out if it's real. And yeah. there's this whole like publishing it and publishing it as a myth. And mm-hmm. I don't know the, that whole, that whole look at um, that side of the, I don't know, of Baghdad was fascinating. Yeah. Too. There's a real critique of media culture mm-hmm. in this book and it's done really lightly and very, and it's very funny, but it is deadly serious. Like who gets the story and how it's get, how it gets reported, who's convinced by it and so on. And, you know, partly that has to do with the American presence as well. Like mm-hmm. what kinds of stories do they want to cover? How mm-hmm. are they portray portraying the Iraqis? Like, does anybody really understand outside unless you're really involved in in the country and its politics and its history and so on, is it was it a surprise to you to know that there were Assyrian Christians and everyone was drinking the entire time and mm-hmm. <laughs> how, yeah. how, how, how those people coming across? Yeah, I mean, like that was the I I mean, I was I was just impressed with how much like I felt like I knew these characters right away. Mm-hmm. I mean, like um, Hadi in particular is such like this like. I mean, literature is full of of hotties who are very good storytellers, but don't tell the truth, mm-hmm. and <laughs> and so they finally have a story that's true, and yeah. like people are like, eh. <laughs> whatever, <laughs> yeah, like that's such a great trope, um, and it works perfectly in this as well. Like it's like it's it's all very familiar, um, which I think is I guess part partially the point. Yeah, and also finally, you know, in the book, it's really questioning who is responsible for the war and or the Frankenstein mm-hmm. and what's motivating this Frankenstein these very profound sort of ideas that, you know, we kill ourselves through fear. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I just put through this book um, with r- real humor and, and a sense of absurdity. And often I think that's the best way to capture violence. Yeah. It's it, the, 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 what's its name um, as it goes around on its sort of, a never-ending killing spree because mm-hmm. the body parts start dropping off right and so it takes a body part from somebody who just killed to like to keep going and that i mean it, on the one hand the metaphor is it like smacks you in the face but in a way that feels necessary mm. like it's just such a powerful image that you laugh but then you keep i keep thinking about it and just being grossed out and then thinking about the political metaphor behind all of it i think this was the first piece of iraqi fiction that i've ever read cool so thank you for that no worries <laughs> <laughs> i think it's really important you know like i whenever i travel for human rights work i always try to read a fiction from the place that i'm in mm-hmm. 
and because I feel like the fiction writers know their know their stuff and they and they're fearless in a way that somehow if you're writing non-fiction there's always someone who's going to come along and say challenge your version of the story yeah um and that's fine but you know fiction allows us to um to see a panopticon of the world 360 and especially with this kind of compassion that this book is written with it's a phenomenal book yeah you really get to get into someone's mind like you really like and it's the best way to get to know a different mind i think yeah and to realize that perhaps the differences are constructed Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, i'm so glad you had us read this (laughs) um why don't we talk about other recommendations other things that we want other people to read or experience in their lives yeah Drew, do you want to go? Sure. I'm. I was gonna do two, and now I want to do three. <laughs> Something that you just okay. said maybe there's um, I, I've really gotten into translated literature in maybe the last two years. Yeah. And I've just had the thought that before I die, I'd like to read a novel in translation from every country in the world. Mm. Wow, that that's feels such like a, good a cool. Idea. That'd be a cool. But one. there's this there's uh, this publisher Peter Owen. They do a. They have this World Series where they're every six to eight months, they're publishing three books in new English translations from around the world. And they've done like Slovenia, Spain, um, the Balkans. And it, like, it's cool to see these, these voices that, I mean, Spain, maybe you're going to get Spanish literature. Mm-hmm. Every, like there's Don Quixote, but um, it's really cool to experience and some of the books are better than others, just like in English or in French or in any other language that is more prevalent around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that they're doing some really cool stuff, and I really appreciate the opportunity even to pick up a book. And then if I don't like it, it's still like, oh, but okay, like I would never have been exposed to this voice otherwise. Totally. Um, but the other two things that I will more specifically recommend, one is a TV show called Succession um, that... I ended up starting to watch around the same time that I was reading We They're Young. Uh, and it's about, it's it's kind of Lear-esque, an older media magnet in the States um, is about to sort of give over control of his country or his company, but instead he, he like wants to hold on. So it's a little bit more infighting than Lear where in Lear he's like, bye. Yeah. Um, and then the other is... Uh, a book that sort of it fits i i picked it up right after frankenstein in baghdad um lives of the monster dogs mm-hmm. by kirsten backus mm-hmm. that is it was originally written in the 90s and it at the beginning of it the opening sort of letter in the novel is dated october 2017 i was like oh wow that's now in the past mm-hmm. <laughs> but the idea is that um these dogs show up in new york in the early 2000s and they are they've been genetically modified they have hands and voice boxes and they're all like dressed in 1800s prussian garb and they show up in new york and sort of become this brief media sensation um and it's written from the points of view of some of the dogs there's an excerpt of an opera that one of them wrote and then also a couple of the humans who circled around them for the period of time that they were alive wow it's re- I loved it. Yeah. That yeah. sounds amazing. It's mm-hmm. really cool. Yeah. Um, and the new edition from FSG has a great introduction from Jeff Vandermeer. 
cool. Did you want to recommend something? I feel I want to. Yeah, I do. Um, I have had the most extraordinary six weeks here in America, and I've been able to travel um, around the country to different cities. And in every single place, I have just been blown away by the independent bookshop culture here. Yeah, It is so phenomenal. And it just means that if you're on your own in any city, any given night, you can go somewhere where there will be a group of people sharing books and talking about books. And so um, I never felt like I, you know, got lonely in a way um, mm. because it, it isn't always the thing. You don't always want to go sit in a restaurant and spend $20 on dinner while you read your own book or, or read a book that you're carrying with you or watch something on your screen or something. You know, the talks are free. They're in independent bookshops that are often run by people who are just so passionate about sharing literature. Um, I didn't, I spent one night in this town called Chico in Northern California mm-hmm. when I was on a driving a little driving trip and um, I didn't go to an event in this bookshop but they were having them it's a secondhand bookshop and I'm going to recommend it I can't remember what it's called because I've <laughs> drunk half a cocktail um, but I, I'm sure that you know if you look it up town the town is Chico it's in Northern California and um, it, it has the most incredible secondhand bookshop run by it brilliant brilliant people Um I can even see the t-shirt in my mind because I did buy one. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to take a second and figure it out? Because we can pause. Oh, yeah. I don't have any way here, to let do me, that, um, Let me look it up here. Yeah. Chico Independent Bookstore. What's it called? ABC Books and More. The Bookstore. <laughs> it's a huge secondhand bookshop. Oh, hold on. bookshop that's i mean but all of them all of the bookshops i read in um and all of the ones that i visited here in new york a lot of them were in brooklyn and then there's elliott bay books in seattle which Mm -hmm. is phenomenal city lights which is just legendary city lights i went for the first time two years ago and was just blown away by that store i thought it was amazing and reading there was even more amazing (laughs) yeah oh i can't imagine (laughs) um yeah abc books Collectors Inc. Lion. All right. We were not going to find it. (laughs) Yeah, we are going to find it. All of them. But yeah, in particular, there's one really extraordinary one right next to a bakery. Oh, that's even better. Cool. So you can go buy your book and and then go to have an enormous pie, (laughs) which is something I may have done (laughs) because I really like enormous pie. Uh, Yeah, so that's my recommend. Nice. Thank you. Sounds great. I'm going to recommend My Favorite Thing is Monsters, Volume 1 by Emil Ferris. I finally read it. Congratulations. Yeah, it's been on my to-read shelf forever. And I think it's just because I wanted it to be a perfect reading experience. And I finally did it, and it was perfect, and it was great. Nice. Um, It's such a lovingly illustrated graphic novel that really looks like it's like pen and ink on um, notebook paper. Like, Mm. that's really what it looks like. And it's such gorgeous illustrations um, and a very heartbreaking story. And it's volume one. There's many more seemingly volumes, maybe just one. I don't know. But it, this mystery at the center of it is not at all solved. Um, which is that their upstairs neighbor uh, was killed. And it was ruled a suicide, but none of the clues match up for mm. it to be a suicide. There's a very dark theme to this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, and it's an 11-year-old who you're following. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
Cool. So that's uh, recommendations. Preeti, thank you so much thank yeah, you thank for guys joining for us in the damn library. Young and having me on the show. Um, thanks for the book, too. It, it, um, I gave it to a bunch of people at work because I was like, yo, guys, this is better than any Lear we've done in a while. <laughs> Sorry, Oscar. Um, yeah, you've got to see it from the girl's point of view. You know, yeah. this yeah. is not a story about a poor old man who is going demented and his evil daughters are mean to him. This is a story of structural violence in which women are divided against each other and then forced to fight each other for love. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so that's that's the other thing. So now that the show is ending and we're telling you to do things, go buy We That Are Young. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also go um, and review us on iTunes. We really appreciate when you do that. We really like it. Um, you can also go to our patreon.com slash smdb. You can just talk to us. Email us somebodydenbooks at gmail.com. And we still have a couple totes left. Go and buy uh, somebodydenbooks.com slash totes and you can buy one. I'm going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for, again, for coming, Preeti. And thank you all listeners for listening. We'll be uh, back. We'll see you soon. Soon. See you soon. Bye.